You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Dr. Barney Pell is founder and CEO of PowerSet, a startup developing advanced AI technologies to deliver breakthroughs in search and navigation. Thank you for speaking with me, Dr. Pell. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. Your presentation focused on natural language interfaces. This is a really fascinating concept because language is in many ways the way that we define ourselves as human. Um, That's correct. After all this time of interacting with computers on terms that work for computers, we're now just beginning to let people interact in terms that work better for people. Could you tell me a little bit about some of the work you do? Where did you start with attempting to figure out how to talk to a computer like a person? Um, Well, actually, um, for my work, um, I do have an early background in natural language understanding when I was in college. I worked at SRI, and I was part of one of the best groups at the time. Um, So even in the late 80s, I could see the kind of power that we would be able to have from natural language. But at the time, there was fundamental limits in the technology, and computing resources just were not available. Um, So I actually stopped working in natural language for about 15 years. Um, more recently, I was looking at trends in search and what was going. What were the opportunities in the future of search? How could there be real transformations in the game as we know it? And I saw Moore's law being an inevitable trend. And what are you going to do with all those incredible amount of increased computing cycles? So I thought one of the things you can do with that is use natural language because that can really consume all these all these cycles to possibly change the game in search. So having made my own prototype, I went around looking at all the best technology in natural language to see what was really up to the right requirements for large-scale deployment of natural language technology on processing the web. And in researching that, I concluded that Xerox PARC, now PARC, had the best technology by far for the kind of things that I was looking to do, and learned that it was only recently had Moore's Law caught up and the technology caught up so that things can actually become economically viable. So you know, we, now we begin and we've licensed the technology for PARC and we're applying it at very large scale. One of the things that interests me about your work is that it's a long-term project. This isn't a project that is like a five-year plan. You've been engaged in, or Xerox, the park, has been engaged in this project for 30 years. That's correct. This is um, one of the fundamental long-term goals in the field of artificial intelligence. And when the team at PARC formed in, I think, 1972, they identified two major transformations in user interfaces. The first was the GUI, or the graphical user interface. And the second was the the CUI, or the conversational user interface. And they started working on both of those in parallel. And they knew that the conversational interface would take a lot longer and was much harder. Well, it turned out about 10 years later, the graphical user interface, you know, uh, popped, and we had the entire PC revolution. And only it took about you know 30 years before the conversational interface was ready to actually be starting to be commercially deployed. And it's a very special time right now because this was not even possible five years ago. I wonder if you talk about the way that we were already experiencing artificial intelligence in a sense with the way some of the searches present us with dialogues. Could you talk about that? Yes, actually already there's a fair amount of work that would fall into the category of artificial intelligence uh, that we already interact with a daily basis on search engines. There, uh, if you think about the smarts that go into serving ads, for example, 
figuring out on the basis of what users have clicked and what's on the page and what the advertiser's intention was, serving ads that actually have a chance of being relevant is in fact a very hard problem. So there's a lot of AI built into those kind of algorithms. Then we're already having dialogues with some of our search engines. It's no longer that you just put in a query and you get back results and that's the end of the interaction. Systems now become much more helpful. You'll notice if you type in um, something that's misspelled, the system comes back and says, did you mean, and gives you spelling suggestions. And not only that, but now you're getting suggestions on related searches and ways you might have phrased your search and attempts to disambiguate your query. So already on today's systems, we're starting to see the beginnings of a conversational style of interaction. And that's only going to increase as these systems have more understanding of, of, of language and interaction. Could you talk a little bit about your work in that when we think of translation from one language to another, we think of English to German or German to Spanish. And when you start thinking about that web, that's a huge number of translations and potential translations. You're doing something different. You've gone down to the core of what language is and, in a sense, what humanity is and tried to recreate that on a computer. Well, let's see, there's a lot there. The first is that uh, there are many applications of natural language, natural language processing technology. One of the ones that people have looked at for a long time was machine translation. Um, and another that people have looked at for a long time was uh, you know, interaction and processing of meaning. Machine translation, it turns out, there's been possible to do a fair amount of progress without the system understanding anything at all about the meaning of the language. So the statistical approaches that are being taken, like in Google's translation system, it doesn't know anything about what any of the words actually mean. It looks at these words tend to co-occur. When they occur in, in a document in English in this way, they tend to these other words tend to appear in documents in Chinese in this way. And so it tries to stitch together the most likely rearrangements of the words using that statistical knowledge. But there's no meaning in it at all. And it works pretty well because language tends to have certain coherence to it. But you've been able to do a pretty good job of translation, completely sidestepping the problem of meaning. That's not at all the same thing you want to do when you are trying to actually use meaning to get information out of your documents and to get a better search experience. So it's a much harder approach. You actually have to go to some level of really extracting out the meaning of the concepts and relationships in the documents. It, you know, it's harder, and um, it's going to be a long time before it's perfect. But now we're at the dawn where we can start doing this. I'm wondering if you'd care to talk about the two different approaches to, to AI. That is, there are some that are top-down, where it's um, we want to plug in Einstein, and then there are some that are bottom-up where we want to kind of plug in baby Einstein. <laughs> Could you talk about those two kind of uh, um, approaches to our AI? Sure. Um, I would actually characterize the, um, the top-down approach as being one where we um, focus on what we're trying to accomplish in terms of engineering goals and behavior, and we leave ourselves free to do however we possibly can do this with all the best engineering technologies available to us. We really think about it, design it for certain purposes, and then keep on working the system to improve it and make it better and better. But it's really, we're the designers and we're doing it for our own reasons. The bottom-up approach is actually more human-inspired, um, trying to be as close to what we know from the human brain as possible, um, maybe making kind of a baby brain, and, um, and then hoping that once we get to that point, then that baby brain can learn in the same ways as humans learn all the rest of the things that it needs to do. Um, so there's kind of a, a tension between people who are predicting how it's going to come about. Is it going to be all bottom-up, it's all based on brain models, or is it going to be top-down, these great engineering systems? It's kind of analogous to artificial flight. So when people were first looking at how we're going to make um, flight, you make, make machines that could actually fly, uh, a lot of people looked and said, well, it's got to be like a bird. Birds are the one thing we really see that fly, or anything that has these kind of flapping wings. So our you know, future planes we're trying to make should have flapping wings. 
And then it turned out, when all was said and done, that that approach didn't really work very well. And instead, understanding the fundamental principles of what was that enabled flight, and the wings were just one thing that let something fly, the flapping was just one way that, that enabled something to fly, realizing the fundamental engineering principles and then designing the best thing that could work, we came up with airplanes, which are nothing at all like birds. They exploit the same single fundamental principle, but otherwise they're nothing like that. So this debate exists between people saying, intelligence is one thing we have, and we need to basically model exactly on human brains as much as possible and just make them simulated and robotic, and that's the way that it'll work, versus people who say, maybe there's some core principles of intelligence at the heart of it, and once we understand those principles, then we can engineer the systems to be as good as possible, and they can be way better than people ever could and transcend all those limits. I'm wondering if you could tell me about PowerSet. PowerSet is building a new search engine based on revolutionary advances in natural language understanding technology. Unlike current search engines that only understand um, documents in terms of just a bunch of keywords, and they match the keywords in your query with the keywords in the document, PowerSet reads every single document, one sentence at a time, and extracts some level of meaning, concepts and relationships directly from the document. This enables a whole different search experience where you can now express what you want just in normal plain English, and the system extracts the meaning and relationships in your, in your intention, in your query, and that with the documents and matches it for a whole different kind of search experience. It's like the difference between talking to a librarian and looking at an index. That's a great analogy. It's like talking, like, you know, when you talk to a librarian, you expect the librarian can um, help you and understand what you really want um, versus looking in the index in the back of a book where you have to do all that hard work and maybe that's the right, impossible to express what you really wanted because if you found the, if you thought what you're looking for was a certain word and the index doesn't happen to have that word but has other meanings, it's not based around the meaning, so you're stuck. The way we are approaching the singularity is kind of haphazard. It's based essentially on a bunch of companies competing to see who can come up with the first AI. And the singularity seems to be something that would be maybe worthy <coughs> of a effort along the lines of the moon program. I think the, 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 first of all, the concept of the singularity is not about people trying to create the individual singularity. There are people who are trying to create various kinds of AIs, but the singularity is a concept of at some point through whatever paths that happened, there's going to be some, a, some artificial intelligence systems that have the same level of capability as humans, but because they're actually based on artificial means and silicon, they can progress along the lines of Moore's law, whereas humans still suffer from our normal biological limitations and biological evolution. So once they start to catch up, then very quickly they'll double and multiply in terms of their speed and power, and very quickly leave humans in the dust. That's the basic idea of what, of what the singularity being some point. When is that going to happen? We have to be prepared and think about that right now, because it's going to happen fast, potentially faster than anyone else thinks. Um, in terms of the second part of your question, which is, if AI is so important and it's going to transform the world with these general intelligence systems, should we really have it be done at the level of individual companies competing to create products, or should it be something like a Moon Project or a Manhattan Project where the government helps to create these things in, in big ways? Um, I think on that, first of all, the government has traditionally been a very large funder of art artificial intelligence um, for research. The, uh, D Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, DARPA, um, has been uh, you know, one of the largest funders at all of AI. Other governments like uh, Japan with their fifth generation project had a very major government funding focus. So I think governments recognize this and, and do continue to fund. Um, 
I'm, I'm not convinced that the, uh, the real amount of funding that's going to be needed to make these things happen is going to come from um, governments taxing people and using those taxes to pay for the research. I think when you actually get um, massive markets uh, where, which are benefiting from general AI, they'll take the profits from those markets and feed it back into research. And I actually think it's going to be far more money uh, spent on AI than has ever been spent so far. And um, you know, for far better purposes because each little bit you spend translates into better products that help us and already immediately change people's lives. Could you talk about the search for funding for the kind of research that you're doing? In terms of the search for funding, there, there are a number of pathways that uh, people get for funding artificial intelligence research. Um, the uh, Department of Defense and um, National Science Foundation have historically funded very basic research that addresses long-term needs. Um, sometimes corporate research labs like Xerox with Xerox PARC um, provide sustained funding so that people can be working on very long-term um, programs. I think that increasingly as AI systems start becoming viable in the marketplaces, then a lot more funding is going to come from the companies who are benefiting from those competitions. So those markets uh, include things like autonomous vehicles, which could be on unmanned planes used by the military, increasingly used, or autonomous cars. I think we're probably just a decade away from where we'll expect cars to be our taxis for us, and they'll be automatic, and we won't have to worry about where we're parking anymore. Elderly care robotics is really big. There's a huge increasing population of, of, uh, of boomers. Average is going up, and there's going to be far more older people than there are young people to actually take care of them. This is going to drive an intense demand for better robots that are better capable of helping people. Also in areas about video games and artificial worlds, the quality of experience in those things is going to be driven increasingly by the quality of the AI. And then we talk about conversational interfaces and search engines. Um, you know, thinking about the size of the operating system market and how important operating systems are and the size of the search market and how important that is and increasingly so. These are our starting points for all of our interactions with computers. And all the money that's made out of those is increasingly driven by the quality of the AI systems that are behind them. So when these things really start to hit, massive amounts of money is going to be going into AI and I think it's going to accelerate things faster than people realize and it's also going to be an incredible source of funding for the you know, companies themselves, their internal research and for the outside world. One of the things that interests me is that a lot of the topics we're talking about here 10 years ago would have been complete science fiction. Five years ago would have been dodgy, dodgy science. Now it's reality. Could you talk about the relationship of how science fiction drives this technology sector? Yeah, actually, it's, it's very interesting. I would say a lot of things we're talking about here at the Singularity Conference um, are still probably closer to science fiction um, than they are to reality. This is a place where people are coming together and thinking about what's the long-term possibilities when, humans when computers really catch up to people. And in some ways, it really feels like a lot of things are still driven by sort of science fiction concepts. But it's also the case that change is happening so quickly. And our minds are not designed to think about change on that scale. We, we think about things being very similar to you know, tomorrow or five years from now as they were today. But just look back 10 years ago and there wasn't, you know, there was hardly an internet. People didn't know what a web browser was. Um, people didn't, hardly had mobile phones. The changes have been so profound in that kind of a time period and it's only, only increasing. So that line between what is science fiction and just futurizing and what's the reality right ahead that we need to think about now is actually starting to blur. How do we identify whether or not we've achieved artificial intelligence? How do we know if it's there or maybe, as if some of the speakers have, have offered, if it's just ignoring us? 
So in terms of identifying whether AI has really been achieved or not, the first thing is that people have, may have many different definitions of what it means to be you know, artificial intelligence, um, what counts, what doesn't count, in the same way as we say what does it mean to be intelligent in general. Um, you know, people themselves have many different kinds of intelligence and, and it varies. Uh, one of the definitions that I used um, in my talk today was of a uh, high school replacement robot, high school student replacement robot that can actually compete with people for high school student, high school graduates for the normal kind of jobs that high school grads apply for and have a reasonable chance of getting the job. That means that it needs to be um, trainable and general and robust, also needs to be able to use language and be social, and in addition to all that, it needs to be affordable, otherwise the employer wouldn't choose to hire the robot instead of hiring the person. Um, that's a very concrete definition, and frankly, we'll know that definition is, we'll know that that's been achieved when you start finding that um, robots are winning at least half the jobs, you know, in the job market competition with high school graduates. Um, that's a very, cl a very clear milestone. Um, there are other forms of advanced artificial intelligence um, that could exist in wholly different ways. They may not even be an embodied form. They may be emergent in sort of search engines or emergent in, in kind of the internet and the way that it works. Um, they may also evolve through some kind of really strange artificial life. And if they're that different in terms of how they evolve, then we may not actually know that they exist and they might not know that we exist. Um, and for that matter, they may already be here and we just don't know about each other. Tell me a little bit about how science fiction drives technological progress. I think the, the most fundamental thing about technological progress is the imagination of what is possible. Um, if you believe something's not possible or you don't even think about it, then you'll generally just never achieve it. And it's science fiction is a place where people explore these kinds of concepts and they try to explore them in very concrete scenarios that capture our imagination. And when you have that, we think technologists then start thinking, wow, that's possible, that would be really cool, I can imagine it, thus let me go out and try to create it. And sometimes these things take an incredibly long time, but once the ideas are there, I think for, for many things, unless they're truly physical impossibilities, and there's few of those, um, eventually technology will catch up. So I think science fiction is actually critical for driving technological progress, and that's clearly what's happening here in the futurist community in Singularity, that uh, tw 30 years ago, there were science fiction writers writing about some kinds of things, and now many, many of the science fiction concepts have already come to pass, and that's just going to become increasingly true over time. We've been speaking with Dr. Barney Pell. He's the founder and CEO of PowerSet. Thank you for joining me, Barney. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thank you.